0: will notice that this is a pretty thick packet. It um, only covers the first three verses, so that's how far I'm wanting to get this evening. But please know that I'm not in any hurry. If we get into good conversations that we don't get to verse number three, then we will pick up next week where that is. I, I'm not. I don't want to rush through this. I don't want to just get done. With Tell you the approach I've taken. I've taken a theological approach, not a ministerial approach. I know that pastors and elders and deacons and ministers who see how this thing flesh, how head comes, fleshes itself out in the church, is a very delicate and gentle job when you're dealing with people who have emotions, who have experiences, who've went through certain things. This is, that is handled by, by gifted shepher- under-shepherds and ministers and elders who know how to handle it correctly. That's not what I'm doing. I'm simply going, what is the theology of the head covering? What does scripture teach? How does that apply? And that's what I'm going to do. We're going to read some things. We're going to discuss some things tonight where I'm kind of point blank about, about where I think other theologians or exegetes have gone wrong and where they have gone right. I am simply making a case for where um, where Jennifer and I have come to and why we think the scripture is teaching. So please hear it in that sense, that I'm not speaking to you. I'm not speaking as how this ministerially flushes itself out. I'm going to leave that to the men who have been voted in and appointed by God to do so. Um, Secondly, let's see here. I have a couple packets up here, and I, I feel like this is important to mention. When I was in college, I learned the difference between popular sources and scholarly sources. A popular source is usually by a pastor or preacher who is very well-known, and he, he's a well-known theologian. I want to tell you, as you research these kind of things, I found it very beneficial to look for the authors who aren't as well-known. The people who are writing, not necessarily for an audience, not necessarily to see that their platform get bigger, but they write simply because they write about what Scripture says. Um, so, again, hopefully that gives, gives you an introduction where I'm going at with this. And um, I, I did not leave any blanks to be filled out. I gave as much information in the packet as I could. And so I want to take it from that angle and that way, whatever you hear this evening or say, what did he say? Most of it's going to be right there in front of you, be able to take it home with you. Um, So I just want to go ahead and do start with the introduction here. Um, Are there any questions or comments about anything? No? Okay. All right, a few years ago, my wife and I embraced Christian head covering. It was important to us that the practice of head covering be a scriptural teaching and not some extra biblical tradition. We knew that embracing the, by embracing the practice, we would receive some strong pushback and criticism. So we studied the case carefully, and after much prayer and study, we adopted the position. And over time, we've only, seen, we've only been more convinced of its necessity. Now, when people ask why we practice Christian head covering, we tell them that we're Christians, and head covering without controversy is a scriptural distinction as disciples of Jesus, we understand that God has a design for his people and we aim to live out that design in our lives joyfully. We did not, my wife and I do not come from a background that practiced it. Um, I'm former Southern Baptist. She's former Southern Baptist. You will hardly, if ever, see a Southern Baptist woman wear a covering whatsoever. And in fact, they rejected the covering and they considered such practices such as the head covering unnecessary or for some people legalistic i'm preparing the material to encourage our brothers to see its value because it's going to confront us as much as it confronts the women and then encourage our sisters in its value and practice to appeal to those who reject the head covering to reconsider it now i want to give you four of the Accomplishments that Paul's arguments make, that Paul makes. Paul makes brilliant arguments of the legitimacy of the head covering, and, he, and his arguments accomplish four things. The first one is they teach that the head covering is an expression of faith in Christ. Secondly, they elevate the head covering out of any cultural limitation. Thirdly, they establish the head covering as a Christian distinction and ordained tradition. And fourthly, They hold the head covering as a witness to all creation. Now, Paul builds his case for the head covering in 1 Corinthians 11 out of five orders. The first order is the divine order. That's what we're going to be looking at tonight is the divine order. Secondly is the created order, and that's in verses 7 through 9. The third order is the administrative order, and that's verse 10 through 12. The spiritual order in verse 10, and then the natural order in verses 13 through 15. Now, why do I identify that there's these big orders that Paul is invoking in regards to the head covering? Well, because, 1 Timothy 2: 11 through15, let me ask you a question. Who here? Um, do we have any women pastors in the building? Yeah, no No women No women pastors. Anywhere? Okay Any uh, Joyce Meyer fans? Why is that? Because if you go to a more conservative church, they will recognize First Timothy two, eleven through fifteen teaches and First Corinthians fourteen, teaches that and first Timothy three, I can keep going, teaches that the pastoral authority or leadership within the church are to be held by men. That's not controversial in a lot of conservative circles, they would uphold that. They why do they uphold that? because Paul in 1 Timothy 2 invokes the created order. When Paul talks about leadership in the church, he goes, listen, the reason why men are the teachers and leaders in the church is because they were because of the created order. Because Adam was formed first and then Eve was come from Adam. It's a created order. And guess what the conservative entre, uh, entrepreneur I keep calling them entrepreneurs, they're interpreters. The conservative interpreter would say, "Well, we can't change the created order." So Any theological stance based on something that's unchangeable, such as the created order, still stays true. We still uphold it. So Paul says that leadership within a church being held by men upholds today simply because of the created order. The head covering. he not only invokes the created order, but the divine order, the administrative order, the spiritual order, and the natural. He invokes five of them, and that's quite a bit. And we, so this order transcends culture and time, and the structure of church leadership should reflect this in every generation. And, it, and if such is the case for 1 Timothy 2, then 15, how much more should Paul, uh, we, should we heed Paul when he invokes not one cultural transcending order, but five? Indeed, Paul's case for the head covering is a much more developed position from Paul than for many of the other convictions the church has, in large part, maintained. Now, when I think about the 15 or 16 verses that discuss the head covering and you read about some of the veiling that goes on in the Old Testament that's quite a bit of scriptural material from my background as a Baptist if you were a really good Christian you'd be at church three times a week at at least three times a week and if you wanted extra credit you showed up on a fourth time to do something but you were at church constantly why why? Because every Baptist preacher, forsake not, forsake not, forsake not, forsake not. What's he referring to? He's referring to Hebrews ten twenty five: forsake not the assembling of yourselves, especially as you see the day approaching. One verse, and they change and alter their lives to be at the church all the time. One verse. Imagine 16. Okay? When we talk about the qualifications for a pastor in 1 Timothy 3, um, there's And we talk about the qualifications of a deacon. There is just as much support for the head covering as those things. And yet churches say, yeah, we have to hold to the qualifications of a pastor or a deacon or elder or bishop or however you interpret it. Overseer is what it means. Or we have to have people who are lined up with the scriptures. But then we have these 16 verses and they're like, not those verses. And that's Irresponsible. I'm on page two at the big top, just so if someone's not following with me at top page two. I put this author's in the I put this author's position and the church's position for the vast majority of church history. I think it's important to notice or notify that the church has practiced head covering for eighteen hundred years. Okay, I thought he was coming to get me or something. <laughs> The church practice had came for 1,800 years. What happened? The last 100 to 150 years, a transition has taken place. If we were to just go back a couple hundred years, almost every Christian denomination would have women with coverings. But now, the majority is that they don't and the very few still retain the head covering. So I wanna start from there and I wanna look at what this uh, passage teaches now um before we go into that are there any comments or questions after this point please feel free to interrupt me ask questions make points of view it's fine no all right i'm going to talk to you about some a cultural historical context you see it right there in your packet so i'm going to read through some of this and you will see uh, some of how this topic came to be So Paul established the church at Corinth on his second missionary journey, and you find that in Acts 18. He had departed from Athens and made a short trip west to Corinth, where he joined another Jewish couple in tent making. On Sabbath days, he would lecture in the synagogue, convincing the Jews and Gentile converts that Jesus was the Messiah they were looking for, especially after Timothy and Silas came. You can get all this out of Acts 18. As typical, the Jews rejected Paul's appeal and he turned his attention to the Gentiles for the next 18 months while he was at Corinth. And as a model for many modern church planters, Paul planted the church in a large, prominent city. Some would estimate the population of Corinth to be around 500,000 people and some even likened it to 700,000 people, including 500,000 slaves. Corinth stood as the capital city of Achaia, and like other large cities, Corinth was diverse, both religiously and ethnically, as well as highly immoral. They would, um, to live an immoral lifestyle would be like to Corinthianize is what they would call you. They would call it Corinthianizing when you would live a very immoral, loose, loose lifestyle. I want you to think of, and so, so being, um, religious prostitution was there, sexual immorality were rampant, and being a Corinthian was synonymous with being sexually loose. Like that is Las Vegas. People, Why do people go to Las Vegas? They go to commit sexual immorality. They go to gamble. Or they have something they want to take to Pawn Stars. That's the only reason why they would go to Las Vegas. If you don't know what that is, it's a, it was an old, it's a show that people watch about Pawn Stars. But they go to Las Vegas for those very things. If someone says, hey, I'm going to Vegas. They're not, they're not just going there for a vacation usually. It's, it's like there's other things going on. But Paul... We'll, so this will, matter, this will matter as we see Paul will use universal and profound theological principles to make his case to them not to let their cultural context dictate their activities but eternal truths. Could you imagine being a Christian in Las Vegas? That's what the Corinthians were facing. They were trying to be Christians in a place like Las Vegas. The occasion that brought the letter to be was about five years after establishing the church they, like many churches, started capitulating to their culture. They started giving in. Okay, Paul started them well, they're doing okay. They start giving into the culture around them. They start wanting to reflect the culture around them. Some of them started defecting back. And Paul had to bring them back to the truth. Now, fortunately for Paul, the church in large part was willing to heed the apostle and repent. So the occasion of the first Corinthian letter was Paul was corresponding through letters about church concerns, moral issues, church structures and ordinances. And division in the body. Now it's worth noting there are three parties that brought information to Paul for him to address. So 1 Corinthians came from these three parties. There was an anonymous report of toleration of sexual morality in the church. So someone comes and says, hey, there's some bad stuff going on down there. You should say something about it. Secondly, Chloe's household reported the divisions within the church body. He says, he goes, Chloe's household has reported to me. And he goes, in part, I believe it, that they were being divisive. And three, a committee made up of Stephanus, Fortunus, and Achaicus, Achaeus, who were sent with a list of questions for Paul to answer for the church. So if you don't like serving on committees, these guys didn't like serving on a committee. But they had to go to Paul and ask him questions from the church. The church would come together. They'd say, what kind of questions do you have? They'd write them down. They'd go to Paul. And Paul would respond to these questions from the church through this committee. <laughs> so it was at this time when Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians Paul was in the city of Ephesus, and we learned that in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 8, and 9, on his third missionary journey during his two-plus-year ministry there. 1 Corinthians is not Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. I'm on top of page three, if if you're following along. In fact, there's a good chance Paul wrote up to four letters to Corinth, and God preserved two of them for the edification of today's church. So, based on this information, the church at Corinth, though diverse and gifted, was a church where Paul had to work very hard at retaining godliness, morality, unity, and Christian distinction due to their cultural surroundings. Throughout the letter, you can hear his shock and exasperation with, with what the Corinthian church was tolerating and even participating in. A few of those occasions are found in the word, what, as he dictated answers to Sosthenes. Um, I want to read to you a couple of these verses. In 1 Corinthians 6.16, it says, What? Know ye not that, w- that, that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two saith, he shall be one flesh. What? Could you imagine this committee sitting there like, they want to know if they can sleep with prostitutes. What? Don't you realize that if you go do that, you're joining yourself with that prostitute? Don't you realize that? 6.19, he does it again, where it says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have uh, have of God, and ye are not your own? Don't you realize you're not yours anymore? Don't you realize that your body's now God's, and you're going and sleeping around with people you don't even know who they are? What? I could just hear Paul in exasperation with it. You see it in eleven twenty-two, where he says it again. He says, "What?" Have you not houses to eat and drink? He's talking about here the Lord's Supper. They would come and they would drink the wine and get drunk at communion. Could you imagine that communion service? They're coming to communion. They're drinking. They're getting drunk. And Paul's like, what? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? So he is he is shocked by some of the things that he's hearing about. As he's answering questions and concerns of the committee. Now in the head covering the passage, he makes it clear to the Corinthian church to line up with the rest of the churches of God and that they didn't get a pass to scriptural practice. And I believe that, honestly, that's what verse 16 is about. Verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 11 is, listen, the rest of the churches observe this, just because you're in Corinth does not mean you get a pass to scriptural practice. He had to defend his ministry begrudgingly. He had to boast in his ministry, which he hated to do. He had to reinforce basic morality and a unity and repeat elementary doctrine and defend essential doctrines. Call the church to discipline blatant sin and more. If you remember, one of them young men was uh, sleeping with a stepmom. Okay, that's pretty bad. It's not good. And they were like, that's okay. We're good. We're cool with it. And he's like, what? Don't even eat with them. Okay, he goes, don't worry about the people that's going outside. So he goes, God will judge those on the outside, but the church needs to take discipline on the one who's inside and, um, and more. So I gave you a whole bunch of verses there where Paul has to deal with a lot of this stuff. He admits his letter was hard on them to receive. This is a very hard letter. And some, some of the scholars I wrote says, they say, I really don't know how this letter could be read that it was that hard of a letter. I'm like, I, I don't think these people have ever had to work with people. You don't have to write a hard letter for it to be taken Okay, we, we all know what happens with text messages, two-dimensional conversation. You ever say something, you're like, oh, no big deal. And they're like, find out your wife's mad at you in your day's room. And you're like, what, ha- what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying that if you have an apostle, and he wrote some very strong language in that first letter, they were tremendously upset by it. And he ends up having to work through it. And it, the, fortunately, they took it, they took it and they repented and it led to their repentance. And you can, if you want more about that, right there, 2 Corinthians 7 gives you a little bit of that restitution. Um, before I move on to the literary context of 1 Corinthians, are there any comments or questions or thoughts that you have about the cultural context of what's going on? Paul's in one city, writing to another city about how they're supposed to be living. Okay? Paul is in Ephesus, writing to Corinth, which is west of Ephesus about what how they're supposed to be living i'm going to be asking a few questions that might put a, pe- a few people on edge i'm just letting you know that now i don't say those questions because these are the questions we have to wrestle with in order to talk about some of these subjects um, so you'll be hearing some of that so the literary context of first corinthians aforementioned the first Corinthians most likely paul's second letter to the church at corinth the letter can be broken up into five sections you have the introduction that's one one through nine and then you have a response to the divisions in the church that's one ten through chapter four and then body number two there is a response to the toleration of sexual immorality in the church it's chapters five and six body number three is responses to various questions from the committee and that's seven through 16 verses one through 18 and then you have a conclusion which is chapter 16 verses 19 through 24 our passage is located near the center of paul's responses to various questions from the committee questions over many topics such as marriage food offered to idols paul's ministry idolatry head covering the lord's supper spiritual gifts love public worship the resurrection etc so paul answers passages answer passages may or may not connect to the previous passage this is going to play a part as we look into this passage, does 1 Corinthians 11, basically 2 through 16, connect back to chapter 10? Or does it connect with the rest of chapter 11 through 14? Because that is one of the big dividing lines of how people interpret this passage. Where does it connect? So because Paul is answering random questions from the committee, he may or may not connect these. or they may. So they may be connected or they may not be connected. So and then I, the last paragraph there says some, some have t- tied the head covering passage in with the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, church order, making the head covering something only to be observed at church who here has heard that argument? You're only supposed to cover in the church outside of that you're not supposed to cover you know why they do that because they connect verses 2-16 through in with 17 through the rest of 14 and I'm going to tell you what I think about that It would be incorrect to limit it to only the gathering of the body because Paul begins the section dealing with the church gatherings in verse 17. We're going to look at that. I'm not going to look at it yet. In a minute, we're going to look at that, and we're going to see Paul puts a a section break right there in 17. And what that does is that separates the head covering out from how we function as a church body. It doesn't mean the head covering is absent from how we function church body it just doesn't mean that it has to be within the context of the church body in fact i would say it would be more suitable to tie the head covering practice back to the preceding passage dealing with an individual's effort to live to the glory of god and even who and even alter their private and public behavior for the sake of others and if you remember in the chapter 10, Paul is saying I'm not going to, he goes, if you are offered a meal and they don't say anything, just eat it. Everything, if the Lord owns the earth and all these things are his anyway, just eat it. But if they tell you that it's been offered to an idol, he goes, don't eat it. Not for your sake, but for your brother's sake who's offended that you're eating food offered to an idol. And he goes, why is my Christian liberty limited because of my brothers? He's basically saying, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. In fact, I would say that the head covering passage is a link between the individual spiritual lives of believing women or believers to the life of the corporate body of the church. I view it like this. As an individual Christian, I'm living here. This is what Paul and 1 Corinthians told me to live like, And then, and I'm living for the glory of God, and then the church structure comes in, and there's that transition, and that's that's where I would put the head cover. I put it both in private and public. Our passage is one of the places, is one place in this letter where Paul praises the church, and this praise is that Corinth, is that the Corinthian believers are upholding the ordinances that Paul delivered to them and uses his praise to validate the head covering and its theological meaning now before i go on we we haven't even read the passage yet we're not even there yet because all this stuff matters it matters what's paul facing what what's going on in the book and i want to take just a couple minutes here and i want to deal with these poor presuppositions presuppositions is what i assume to be true before i ever come to the bible The the difficulty with presuppositions is this has to be true regardless of what the Bible says, and we all do it. We all come to the Bible with this set of presuppositions that has to be true. Now, some of these presuppositions can be determined. Like, for example, if I come to Scripture and I've predetermined in my heart that Scripture is inspired by God and true, that means I presuppose that when I'm reading my Bible. That's a good thing. But we all bring presuppositions. Now, I want to deal with some of the things that are brought into this um, passage from others. So, how we handle this text, meaning the head covering passage, has a lot to do with what we presuppose. We want to make sure our presuppositions, what we assume to be true, do not cloud the meaning of the text. Okay? I have glasses on. It seems like the older I get, the worse my eyes get. But when we read the Bible, we don't read them with clear lenses. We read the Bible with colored lenses. Some things we can see, some things we can't. Whoever remembers those cereal boxes, and you could, and you had to get the lenses, the red lenses, and then you see all these squiggly red lines, and you put on the glasses, and ah, there's the picture. Who ever saw that? Anyone? Okay. We all have lenses, and that means we can see certain things, and that means that we can't see certain things. The goal of hermeneutics or the interpretation or interpreting the Bible is to take those lenses off. I don't want to see just what I want to see in the Bible. So many people will read the Bible, and say that's directly talking to so-and-so, and, and I know it means that, and then you find out that wasn't even what's going on. It has nothing to do with any of that. But because we brought our presuppositions, so the goal is to get rid of that. We want to be sure, we want to be sure to be faithful to the original context without limiting the truths that transcend culture in its original context. Most expositors will admit that this is one of the most difficult passages to exegete, not only because of the language of Paul, because Paul is his language, you kind of have to work through what he says. It's, it's not the easiest language to work through. But the consequence of its application, we were talking a little bit before, before everybody showed up, and there was a fellow who came to, the, came to the understanding, okay, head covering is a scriptural distinction. And he, said, and he said, half his church walked out. That's what makes passages like this so difficult. Because if a pastor goes into his church and say, hey, guess what? The head covering is a scriptural distinction. I think we should start practicing it. He could lose half or almost all of his church. It's just a fact of life. Um, who here has ever heard of the name Stephen Lawson? He's a very popular Reformed preacher. Very common. He is one of the go-to guys that a lot of young preachers go to. I want to read to you a quote from him. A few years ago, I was teaching a class on expository preaching at the Master's Seminary. He works at, he works at John, John MacArthur's Master's Seminary. And during the course of, the class, of that class, there was a periodic question and answer session... And I remember one of the students asked me, what, what, what asked me, what is the most difficult passage in the Bible for you to interpret?" And I said, "That's a good question. I've never been asked that question. What is the most challenging portion of Scripture for me to interpret?" And after just a few seconds of careful thought, I said, "I suppose the answer might be 1 Corinthians 11. I, know because, I, know, I don't know because these verses remain somewhat of an enigma as to what is Paul actually saying in these verses. Who is to say what is the most difficult portion of Scripture to untangle the Gordian knots that are in that text? But I think this passage might be on the short list of what are those most difficult passages to work. Through. The guy's teaching a seminary. And he's like, I don't know if I could do it. It's a difficult passage to work through, but it matters. I want to give you a story I have made a friend and he is a, he's one of those brainiac people he's got a PhD in church history he's, he's, he's been a missionary his whole life he's one of those guys he reads Hebrew and Greek I don't understand half of what he says but he's Anabaptist in theology but he's still part of the Southern Baptist Convention and, which Southern Baptist Convention they don't cover but his wife covers and it's, it, he's, they live it in that setting and he was a missionary across seas and he said early on i think it was in the 70s during uh, is uh in ukraine and in ukraine the women would cover and they also wouldn't let women speak from the pulpit it's just their convictions and what they believe and so these two women from europe came from the mission board and they demanded, you have to let us speak on a Sunday morning to a mixed crowd. You don't, you don't say that to a Baptist very fast because Baptists take that stuff very hard. But they said that, like, we're two women, we're coming in, we're going to speak to the mixed congregation on a Sunday morning, we don't care what you said. And so, so they talked over, and, and when they showed up that Sunday morning, they told the missionary, they said, they can speak, but they have to speak from a podium off to the side, and they have to wear a head covering. So, Steve, I don't think he'd mind me sharing his name, Steve went up to them and said, you have to speak from Tony Monsai, and you have to wear a head covering." And the women got so upset. I can't believe they're going to make us do this. This is a bunch of baloney. I can't believe this. And he go, they said, it's not even a salvation issue. He goes, exactly. Now go get a head covering. <laughs> he says, I have never. He goes, I always wonder what stiff neck looked like. He goes, I found out that day and he said and he goes I must say I quite enjoyed it you don't realize how difficult this conversation can be I get the easy part because I can talk about it without knowing everybody's background without knowing the emotional difficulties that people are going through the difficult I pray for is those ministers who have to uh, administer this ordinance to the church and work through all these difficulties so in regards to 1 Corinthians 11, there are three major presuppositional flaws in how popular expositors approach the text. One, they chain the teaching to only Corinth, making it a Corinthian cultural problem with little to no application to other churches of that generation or churches of other generation. You've ever heard? Head covering was a Corinthian thing. You ever heard that? Okay. Because we try to understand the text within its context in an effort to try to free the truth from its context what we do is we end up chaining they end up chaining this practice to Corinth so in response to this again this is the this is me not being uh, emotionally intelligent it's me just saying it we know that Paul was dealing with some pretty unique situations at Corinth. But we also must remember that Paul was trying to bring churches in line with the truth. It is unreasonable to assume that Paul made the truth for the Corinthians unique in his application of Christian living. They are basically saying that Paul made this up. Paul gave this because it was a Corinthian thing. And it was nowhere else to be found in the Christian church. He did it just for the Corinthians. So they're saying now that Paul made up a special thing just for the Corinthian believers. And not only that, but a glorifying Corinthian culture. In fact, we must assume that Paul's intent was to bring Corinth in line with the rest of the churches of God. Again, that's what I think verse 16 um, is all about. Now, in chapter 11, verse 16, it says... But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. I don't think that's a good way to understand that. I think he's saying we have no other custom. This is how the rest of the other churches are, Corinth. You don't get a pass just because you're living in Las Vegas. Okay? I think that's what he's going at with that. Um, So we, it is, it is, and here I'm going to, and I'm going to challenge conservative interpreters right here. It is this exact reasoning by our conservative exegetes that liberal theologians dismiss 1 Timothy chapter two and ver- chapter three in regards to church leadership and male pastors. Do you want to know why liberals, uh, liberal theologians, are okay with women pastors and, um, and 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 no longer in male leadership and all that? You know what? That was a cultural thing. Culturally women cannot do that, and because we don't live in that culture anymore, it no longer applies to us. They sound no different that says, that was the Corinthian culture. We no longer live in that culture, so it no longer is applicable. Okay, They're playing both sides of the coin. But the problem is, is they want to hound 1 Timothy chapters 2 and 3 and say, no, that's permanent. And then they want to look at 1 Corinthians 11 and say, that's flexible. That's inconsistent at best in the so that's exactly what liberal liberal theologians do about Ephesians 5 about the Christian home and even Romans 1 about homosexuality well homosexuality was viewed poorly back then but we've evolved homosexuality is not as bad now that was their thing that was a Roman thing That that was a first century thing that's not a 21st century thing how are they any different than a conservative theologian that says to the head covering, it doesn't apply to us anymore. It was a Corinthian thing. Same thing. They fail to realize that Paul's use of tremendous theological truths, which we we're going to get into some tonight, but later on, and the absence of an appeal to the Corinthian culture should lead them to believe Paul's intent was for the church to counter their culture by living out godly distinctions based on theological principles and spiritual realities not glorifying a Corinthian custom they're basically saying Paul just wants them to be really great Corinthians no he's not nowhere does he say that nowhere does he say look at the culture around you and be like everyone around you so they chain it to a Corinthian culture but then they take it a step further they chain the teaching to Corinth in making it strictly a Corinthian woman problem instead of seeing it as Paul trying to bring the church at Corinth in line with the rest of the churches of that era. So one of the other false presuppositions interpreters bring to the text is that the women of Corinth were rowdy and not submissive and loud and interrupting the sermons and publicly challenging pastors. These were rowdy women. That's why he made them wear the head covering. See, um, verse 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35. Yeah, 14, verses 34 and 35 says, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, for they are commanded to be under obedience, as all sayeth the law. And if they should learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home for the shame for, shame for women to speak in the church. Obviously, they were rowdy and rebellious women. They were outrageously... A disobedient, exceptionally disobedient, outrageously uncontrolled—that's the women that Paul is preaching to, are speaking to, and they create a gulf between those Corinthian women and women today. Well, I—I I, I don't act like that. I'm not exceptionally disobedient. I'm not outrageously uncontrolled. I don't—I don't do that. So obviously, this doesn't apply to me. But that's not what Paul's saying here. First Corinthians eleven two through sixteen, and First Corinthians fourteen thirteen four through thirty five, is the exact same as what Paul said to Timothy in First Timothy two eleven through fourteen. Why can't these be principles? Be principles about sanct- the sanctification and godly character of a Christian woman. Why do they have to have these? Make up these extreme circumstances that make it sound as if uh, that these things don't apply today. And again, this is exactly the argumentation that liberal theologians use to justify family-oriented homosexuality. I listened to a lot of this stuff, and there was a guy, he was, he, was a, he was a homosexual, and he goes, I don't think the Bible's really against homosexuality. And he took Romans 1, he goes, it's not speaking against homosexuality, it's speaking against lewd, abusive, immoral homosexuality. So these men were going around, because they, they would translate uh, chapter 6 as, as uh, male prostitutes, sleeping around with different men. That's what they're conveying. No, good, godly homosexuals who just want to have a partner and have a family. That's okay. It was the lewd aspect of their loose activities that, that Paul was confronting. Do you see how they, when you extravagize something like that, you automatically make a disconnect? And that concerns me. It's like, yeah, it Paul wasn't talking about, there's nothing wrong with women, you know, women women pastors and women in leadership. It was against arrogant women pastors. It was against uh, anyway. And the problem with that mentality is I guess there must have been a lot of uncontrolled, outrageously disobedient women in the church. There must have been. Because the New Testament has numerous exhortations from multiple apostles about the conduct of godly women in the body of believers. I guess also that those other teachings deal with feminine godliness do not apply either since we do not have those issues like Corinth and Ephesus and Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia and Rome and Colossae and Philippi and Crete, etc. Here's the problem. When you look at 1 Corinthians 11 and you look for a reason to say it no longer applies, you undermine the rest of the teachings of what godliness looks like for the rest of the the Testament. That's the problem. Because if I look at 1 Timothy, where Paul tells women to dress modestly, and I say, oh, it's because women were showing up half nude and they were just completely, uh, they were completely loose in their lifestyles and all that. You're like, okay, well then the modesty thing don't apply to me because I'm not that guy. I'm not that way. You see the problem here. No. It's better to assume that Paul, as well as the other apostles, was teaching propriety and godly discipleship for women to exercise their sanctification. This is why a pattern of teaching feminine discipleship exists in numerous places in the New Testament. Women today need scriptural teaching of feminine godliness like men need scriptural teaching of masculine godliness. The head covering has more to do with the broader case of the fall of in the beginning of Genesis and the church's display of God's redeemed society and eventual restoration of all things and anything else. Again, Paul's appeal to numerous cultural transcending theological truths establishes this practice as a Christian distinction, not a Corinthian distinction. In um, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45 it says, and so it was written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. That's Adam in the Genesis. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit, a life-giving spirit. We need to understand that the context that Paul's building off of is Genesis. As we go through 1 Corinthians 11, we start circling through the verses. I'm going to be appealing to Genesis because that's what he's referring to he works through the created order he brings up angels he brings up being made in the image of God it's all Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 all right there and it explains why Paul is doing it so he's not, he's not teaching head covering as a Corinthian distinction he's teaching it as a Christian distinction because guess what Adam fell, their whole humanity fell and the church is the first picture we get of redeemed humanity Of a redeemed society a redeemed people for god it's not a corinthian thing it's a biblical thing so the third one they inappropriately tie head covering to that of public worship introduced in verse 17 instead of seeing it as a continuation of teachings of chapter 10 or standing on its own Um, the reason why it matters how we break down the book this is why it matters a book of the bible is how the passage of interest ours would be first corinthians 11 verses 2-16 through 16 relates to the passages around it many interpreters connect uh, 1 Corinthians 11 2-16 with the chapters after it about public worship of the church through verse four, through chapter 14 this limits the practice of head covering to that on a Sunday morning at church see we only practice you only switch to practice at church the problem with this connection is what Paul says in verse 17-18 so our passage in verse 16 now I have 17-18 right there for you to read Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For First of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it. Now he's starting to address the body of believers. Before he's talking about the head covering, now he's saying, now when you all come together, this is what I'm hearing about you. When you all are coming on Sunday mornings, there's divisions and arguments um, going on amongst you. This is the part where I feel like the break should happen at verse 17. So verse 8 is clearly or clearly a section break for a few reasons. One, Paul uses his literary device of now. See the first word there in 17? Now, in this I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for better, but for the worse. Now, if you go through a word search in 1 Corinthians, you look at the word now, you'll find that Paul uses it numerous times, but he uses it as a section break. He goes, now, regarding foods offered to idols, now, In regards to the head covering, or uh, yeah, and now, in regards to this, or regards to that, now I declare unto you, it's a section break. So when you see now, you see a section break, and we see 17 breaks with 16. This is common book, been used over 10 times to divide up the sections. Secondly, Paul introduces the subject of public gathering and verses, verses for exhortations he'll make afterward. These verses come after the head covering passage and introduce a new section so that it's unreasonable to attach head covering to that to their section's context. It would be better to see the text stand on its own about women covering their heads or springboarding off Paul's climaxing truth of doing everything for the glory of God found in the previous chapter. Any comments or questions? Because that stuff matters. Let's read our passage. In fact, before we read it, go back to Genesis with me. Go back to Genesis with me real quick. I'm going to start at Genesis 2, verse 4. Technically, I could create it. I could go back. I'll go back to verse 26 of chapter 1. And I want, I want, I'm reading this verse because I want you to have this in your mind. And God said, let us, let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness. And let them have dominion over the flesh of the sea, the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth. Notice it says, Let them, it's plural. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. He's given this command to them, not just to Adam, but Adam and Eve. Verse 29. And God said, behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree in which the fruit of the tree is yielding seed to you, it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth on the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. What a beautiful scene of man and woman, humanity having dominion over creation, living in the image of God in perfect order and harmony then verse 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and the, and the host of them. We get a little more detailed description here. And on the seventh day, God ended his works which he had made and rested on the seventh day and from all his works which he had made. And verse 3, God blessed them seventh day and, sa- and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb and every field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth, and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food, and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is, it which compasseth the whole land of Hevelah, where there is gold. And the gold of the land which is there is good, there is Bedellum and Onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. Same, the same is that passeth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hedike, that is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress him to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him an help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an help meet for him. And the Lord God caused deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which he, Lord God, had taken from the man, he made be a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. "...because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And there, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed." Now, the serpent, verse chapter 3, "...now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field where the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden." But of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, which is the midst of the garden, God said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. For God does, God does not know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat. And gave also unto her husband, which with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among, God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman thou gavest to me with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said to the, said to the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The, the serpent has beguiled me, and I did eat. The Lord God said unto the servant, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be for thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake, for in sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it thou was was wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. And Adam called his wife wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord make coats of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, knowing good and evil, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden till to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed the east placed, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned to every way to keep the way of the tree of life. He didn't want Adam to come back. What happened? Lightly disobeyed, deceived, rebelled against God's command, believed the serpent, took it a fruit that was we supposed to do it, and died that day. They were separated from God. What's the point of the gospel? To reconcile us back to God. To restore all things. I'm going to say it tonight, but it's the next week. All creation groans today. the day creation can get a glimmer of what that will look like when they look at the church. Now on that, let's read our passage. I'm going to go to about 8:30. Is that okay? Okay. Chapter 11 verse 1. 1 Corinthians Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I deliver them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth and prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one, as if she were shaken. For if a woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, forasmuch he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord, for as the woman is of the man, so is the man also by the woman, but all things are of God. Judge in yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her, given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom out of the churches God. Let's start at 1 Corinthians 11. I'm on page 7. Pack it. In the passage leading up to 1 Corinthians 11, Paul exhorts the believers to understand their activities in the light of the glory of God for both unbelievers around them and even their brothers and sisters. In verse 31 of chapter 10, Paul exclaims, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Paul concludes in this thought that, if, 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 that it is this attitude that permeates his life and then exhorts the church to follow his example in verse 1 of chapter 11. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. The heart of a disciple embodies this attitude of glorifying God, first found in Christ, who did all things to glorify his Father. If you want to read more about that, John 17. So in like manner, those who follow Christ walk in the same pattern of steps. The true disciple climaxes in those who walk the steps of Christ after him, speaks the words of Christ after him, and lives the life of Christ after him. What did Jesus say? Pick up your cross, follow me. Every step Jesus takes, we step in his footprints. And we follow. What does he say in the Great Commission? Teach all things I've commanded you. What Jesus speaks, we speak. Give your life. Lose your life for my sake in the Gospels and you'll find it. We're called to walk the steps of Jesus, speak the words of Christ, and live our lives after Christ. Those whose lives are being conformed to the image of the Son of God. I want you to keep in mind, we just talk about being made in God's image. Scripture teaches in numerous places that Jesus is the perfect image of God. By us becoming more like Christ, we are regaining the image that was lost in Genesis not we're not gaining it it's being imputed to us by christ thus we follow and imitate paul's following and imitating christ and glorifying god it's reasonable to conclude that paul uses this following as a stepping stone for the head covering the distinction of the christian disciples not just in the distinct pattern of belief but a distinct pattern of life that glorifies god um talking to a pastor friend of mine and he says and I, you know, we talk about what would you be willing to break fellowship over? It's one of those difficult conversations. Well, the only thing I break over is false doctrine. That's what I'll break over. If, If we can agree on all the doctrine points, we're good. But Christianity is more than just agreeing to a certain doctrine point. It's about living a particular life. That's, okay. It's a distinct pattern of life that glorifies God. Everything we do to, glorify God. This is the foundation of understanding the head covering is expression of faith in Christ to glorify God. So if glorifying God is the aim of the disciple, then a warm embrace, I'm going to say this twice, a warm embrace of his ways that counter our culture is reasonable, not extraordinary. The super Christians don't live out God's design. The normal Christians live out God's design. It's, it's reasonable for us to follow in the steps of Christ and scriptural teaching It's not extraordinary. I am not super duper Christian because I choose to apply scripture in my life. That's what we're all called to do. We're all called to live it. We must believe that God's ways are good and that living out God's design glorifies him in our daily lives. We err when we think we can segregate scriptural doctrine from scriptural design, and yes, this includes head covering in this instance. If the head covering is a Christian practice found in the new covenant scriptures, and I believe it is, we should be more alarmed by its rejection in the contemporary church than fearful of being rejected by the contemporary church. Each person should weigh in their heart what their attitude is. Is my heart singled out to the glory of God? Am I willing to follow Christ in every area of my life, even perhaps the head covering, if the scriptures do teach it? Or have I already settled in my heart that it is too much to ask of me to entertain the possibility that I might need to change and not God's design? Sorry, God, I just can't do that. I'm not willing to do that. My wife and I came to this place, and so we knew that if we embrace God's plan in this area, it cost us, and surely it has. But we believe the cost of disobedience would be much higher. So I believe at periodic times in our faith, I don't know about you and your walk with Christ, there are times where... I could almost feel Christ say, John, are you willing to follow me even in this? But Christ, do you not realize it could cost me this? Do you not realize that I have to do this? Yeah. Are you willing to follow me even in this? As you'll see, the head covering is a statement for both men and women to each other, the world, the spiritual domain, and and God of a glorious, redeemed people living out God's ways as they are conformed to the image of Christ and eager expectation of the hope of glory amongst the world. We are called to be a distinct people. Verse 2. Head covering is a God-ordained tradition. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. 1 Corinthians eleven two, Paul established in verse 1 that the church should follow him as he follows Christ, and now Paul uses his following of Christ in verse 1 as the basis of praise that the church remembers him in all things. He's preparing his readers to embrace head covering as a pattern of life and expression of the faithful in Christ. Again, the scriptures provide us with doctrines to believe and a design for us to live. Paul calls these patterns of life that express our faith ordinances. You keep the ordinances as I deliver them to you. Or traditions, if you're reading a modern version. The word ordinance here is an interesting word. It means a substance of teaching or instruction that is handed down or delivered over. Let me say this I am given a teaching from Paul. Okay. Paul is given a teaching from God. Paul takes it and says, Here you go, church. Here's the teaching from God. I delivered it to you. I handed it to you. That's what Paul's calling this ordinance. He's receiving it from God. He's delivering it to the church. That's what a tradition here is or an ordinance. It's only used three times in the entire New Testament. Here in verse 2 and two other occasions in 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to read them. Therefore, brethren, stand fast And hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. That's 2 Thessalonians 2.15. And then the second reference is, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. 2 Thessalonians 3.6. In the first reference, I'm going to give you the context. Paul is differentiating between those who believe the lie, are deceived, are given into the spirit of strong delusion, And those who are beloved in the Lord, saved, sanctified by the Spirit and the truth, and called by the gospel to the obtaining of glory of Jesus Christ. On that basis, the church should hold fast to the traditions. And these are the instructions and teachings that are handed down. In both oral teachings, what they said out of their mouth, and what they hear read in letters of the apostles. This implies that Paul meant these traditions not to be transient practices. Not something the church did for a little while, then they stopped. But bedrock truths. From God to be handed down to the church, which will keep them and hand them down to the next generation of disciples perpetually. Contextually, Paul sees this keeping of these essential traditions as one of the critical distinction between the true church and false religious system. I'm telling you right now that Satan, when the false Messiah shows up and when that stuff happens, he will call himself a Christian. He's a deceiver. And he will have a church. And people will flock to it. And what is one of the things that Paul says that distinguishes his church from the false church? They keep the traditions that I delivered, the, the sacred traditions that God delivered to the church. In the second reference in uh, 2 Thessalonians 3 6, Paul's directly tying these traditions to a pattern of life. Paul sees the church as being kept from evil by the Lord and that they do and will do the things commanded them by the apostles as their hearts are directed into the love of God and, the, and waiting for Christ. The apostles example this pattern of life to be imitated and followed by the church. Now, how should we understand these traditions? Well, KGV translates it as ordinances. And I believe they're correct. The KGV are correct when they render traditions here as ordinances. Because practices such as head covering were delivered or handed down to the church by the apostles. We have to do something with that word, traditions, or ordinance. We have to do something with it. It's handed down to the church by the apostles and as such, originated and ordained by God. Paul literally says this, and and keep their ordinances as I deliver them to you. Now, one key aspect of Paul's ministry, how did Paul view his ministry? He views himself, you've heard me talk about dispensationalists, and we talk about God, you know, that dispensation God interacts at different times. Paul had a ministry of dispensation, okay? Dispensation is like spreading out, like, for example, you all are a bunch of poor people, someone comes to me and says here john here's a million dollars dispense it amongst the people okay all right so i come over here The originator of the truth, he is a dispenser of what he's been given. In Galatians, he makes this argument. He says, I did not receive this from a man. My gospel is not from a man. I got it directly from Christ. So Paul says, he was given to it by from a divine origin. All he's doing is giving it out. So I give you three references here. First Corinthians 9 17. Um, for I do this willing, if I do this willingly, I have a reward, but if it my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed to me. Basically, I don't have an option. I'm going to, I'm going to preach the gospel. Ephesians 3, 1-3, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but so for this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, word, He was given this for them. Colossians 1, 25 through 29. I'll just read the first verse there. Wherefore, I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. This was his ministry. Every minister today is called to do the same thing. You're not called to build your own thing. You're not called to do your own thing. You're called to fulfill what God has asked you to do, to give out what God gave you. Remember what Jesus, when he's talking to the (laughs) disciples, he goes, freely have been given, freely give. Go heal sicknesses. Go preach the gospel. So this dispensation ministry given to Paul was to be used for the church. The best way to understand this dispensation is the same as Paul's explanation for ordinance of head covering. It was given to Paul. Paul took it over here and gave it to the church. Think of it this way. Paul was only the delivery man of the truth. He aimed to deliver what was committed to him to deliver faithfully. And I think it would be interesting. I'm not going to read it tonight because I don't have time. But... If you read, we know that Timothy was Paul's successor and his protege. Read what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 13-27. When Paul's about to die, he tells Timothy, And the things that were committed to you, among many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, all those things given to me from God, I've been faithful to give them out. I'm giving them over to you. Now you do it. Timothy raises up young men in the church. They give it to them. You spread it out to the next generation. They give it to the next generation. You give it to the next generation. That's part of what we're called to do. So the JV is also corrective because of what an ordinance is. The Gospel Coalition defined ordinance as, an ordinance is a Christian rite associated with a tangible means, tangible elements, water, bread, wine, that's celebrated by the Church of Jesus Christ. The term is closely associated with the word sacrament, which is an outward, visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. So what is an ordinance? An ordinance is something that I do with elements. So um, when I am participating in communion, the bread and wine, but we know that it's not just bread and wine. Okay, We know there's so much more meaning behind there, but yeah, it involves bread and wine. Baptism involves water, but we know baptism is so much more than water. Ordinances are Christian practices involving a, a church observance with physical elements. They are comprised of these physical elements, but carry deep theological meaning in the weight for the disciples that observe them. Now, I prefer understanding the ordinance as a God-ordained tradition. That is, a practice commanded in the scriptures for new covenant believers to keep as part of their discipleship and sanctification, such as baptism with water, such as the Lord's Supper with bread and wine or bread and grape juice, foot washing, you've got water, dish, and towel, and head covering, a veil or cloth covering. I believe this is to be Paul's intent to establish head covering as a pattern of life teaching, as handed down ordinance from God. I don't think it is his, this is intent. I believe he says this is his intent. If we're to take Paul at his word, that he is being faithful to hand down this instruction to the Corinthians, then we must believe he is delivering the head covering as a God-ordained practice from God to the church. And this gives head covering further weight as coming from God through the apostle, not the Corinthian culture. I believe this is why Paul exclaims in verse 16 that the tradition is shared amongst the broader church family, not that he undermines his entire case. Thus, verses 2 and 16 provide the bread for this theological sandwich. I'm a former Baptist. I'm going to reference food at least once. Provides the bread for the theological sandwich with a framework by which the teaching of head covering resides. Now, I'm going to deal with these uh, questions, objections, and we'll have to call it a night. And then we will start next week on verse uh, thir- or chapter, uh, page 13. Some may contend that head covering existed in the Corinthian culture, and thus Paul appealed to that culture for the Corinthian church. It's a cultural thing. If that were the case, Paul would have said such instead of wasting his time with all those theological premises. Wouldn't it be easier for Paul just to say, just be like your neighbors. Go be like those other women that are covering in your culture. But he doesn't. He gives all these theological reasons. The fact is, we do not see where Paul appeals to culture. It's unreasonable to think that To think Paul exhorted the church to be like the Corinthians around them. If he had, it would have been the only time in my knowledge that Paul would have urged the church to be like their unbelieving neighbors. If it did exist in the Corinthian culture, Paul never uses Corinth as a basis for church practice in this passage. Ironically, in like manner, I don't go to Las Vegas to find my doctrine. Paul makes it abundantly clear that the Christian head covering was being delivered by him, so any attempts to undermine Paul's claim by attaching the head covering to Corinthian culture is to essentially say Paul did not deliver the very thing he said he delivered. It's also necessary to speak of recent archaeological finds, showing the head coverings was not just a cultural custom in Corinth. Prominent women, not just prostitutes, regularly went without cover. Amongst most scholars that I have found, the issue with head covering is not a matter of culture, but whether the head covering is a cloth veil or long hair, a question that we're gonna tackle not tonight. If such is the case, and the head covering is an ordinance of the church delivered by Paul from God, it should be practiced by believing women. And this author's position is that head covering be reserved for women who professed faith in Christ. This distinguishes it from practice such as modesty, Bible reading, prayer, and other Christian virtues that may be reflected in a Christian home, my children do not participate in head covering um, or communion or baptism without first becoming a follower of Christ. And head covering, in my opinion, should be treated the same. You'll see my daughters do not cover. My wife covers. The days when my daughters accept Christ as a personal Lord and Savior, they, they will embrace head covering perhaps at the same time. Um, that's how I would treat it. And again, they would, they, we don't let them participate in communion or baptism because we don't want to give them false hope. It's important that a believing woman participates in it this brings up the question of christian liberty and conviction who here says head coming is okay it's in the bible we should leave it's christian liberty who's ever heard that it's a christian liberty issue we should just let people decide if they want to follow it great left to the conviction of each believer rather not to participate in i understand this point of view regarding edifying practices but not ordinances christian liberty is a doctrine all on its own deserving study and i looked it up a little bit i i've studied it before but let it be said for now that Paul intended liberty be that from sin. I'm liberated from sin. I'm liberated from the law. I'm liberated from untrue religious system. I'm, rela- I'm uh, liberated from matters of conscience. And I'm liberated to be a servant of God. The fact that pr- that the practice of head covering was handed down to the church by Paul from God and is an ordinance of the church gives credit to him being treated the same as baptism and Lord's Supper as an essential part of a disciple's sanctification. If we want Christian women to, to become better and better disciples we have to believe the head covering means something to them secondly churches that take the position that the head covering is a christian is a christian liberty issue left up to conviction often in with the body of believers where head covering is absent if you don't believe me go to conservative churches that teach it as a conviction and you won't see it there if you do it'll be so minor it might not be noticeable if cre- head covering is a scriptural distinction, why not teach it as such? Would you allow a person seeking membership in the church to join without going through baptism? What if they said that I want to be a follower of Jesus, but I don't want to be baptized? Why? Why don't you be baptized? Well, I am I think I, I said this a few weeks I'm baptized in my heart. I mean, I mean I'm spiritually baptized already because I'm saying follow Jesus. I, I don't need to go through that. I just don't need to go through that. It's obedient to follow through in baptism. It's in orange of the church, it's how you join the church. I know, I know even from my background, Baptist preachers, if you are not baptized exactly how they think you should, they're gonna make you get baptized again to make sure you're scripturally baptized, what they'll call Would you let them join? Why? In, in, in the church? Well, no. It's taught in the scriptures. Well, why do we treat baptism that way but not, not head cover? Or it's like, you know what, I, I wanna be part of the church, I want to be a member, but I don't want anything to do with communion. I just don't want to go. I just don't want to participate in it. It kind of grosses me out washing people's feet. Don't want to do it. I just don't want to be part of it. I'd be like, well, where, where's your heart? Why don't you, so you want to be part of the body, but you don't want to be part of the body? You want to be part of Christ, but you don't want to participate in what Christ asks you to do. You want to say Christ is your Lord. You want to go to heaven, but you don't want to do what he asks you to do. Why do we make these differences? Why would we avoid the subject when we're willing to appeal honest to other doctrines? In this area, we must be willing to patient, be patient, gracious with people against, I'm, I'm talking from just a theological standpoint, I'm not doing it with, uh, with some of the difficulties in this area. But we don't wanna undermine scriptural teaching for the sake of comfort. Thirdly, if the head covering is only a matter of conviction with no true spiritual benefit to the church or life of practice women, why practice it at all? I'm just gonna say it. If there is no benefit to practice head covering, if it's just a conviction that doesn't really matter one way or the other, I'm not gonna have Jennifer wear. I'm not going to ask her to. She won't wear it. Why? It's a pain. It's a pain. It took her how many months to figure out how to put the thing on? I mean, it's a pain. She can't. Two women's retreats, counseling, it was awful. (laughs) Seminars, workshops. Okay, I'm done. But, But if it doesn't mean anything, why do it? It doesn't mean anything. It's just a conviction. It doesn't mean anything. It does mean something. It does mean something. It's common among conservative Christians for the position to be taken that God's ways are good and beneficial believer, even when we do not fully understand their merit. So why is head covering left out of the ways of God? Today, Christianity is viewed as a people who are merely sign a particular doctrinal statement and not live a particular life. Still, the crux of following Paul and following Christ is following imitation. That is, we should pattern our lives after the revelation in Christ and the scriptures, not just that we should regurgitate certain theological precepts. We are called to be disciples, which includes mind, heart, soul, and strength, and those who chose to lose their life so that they may have Christ's life in them, as they are non conforming to the world and being transformed by the renewing of the mind to a new pattern of life in Christ. And I wish I had time to read and write this down, Ephesians four seventeen through five through five, that looks like thirty one. Can't read my own handwriting. He talks about the new life, completely different individuals. Here, and I want to state this. um, The broader problem of seeing the head covering as only a conviction, bound in religious liberty, is those who say, we're okay if you feel convicted to practice head covering. Just don't expect others who do not share the conviction to practice it. That's fine. You practice it. But don't worry about anybody else. Let them decide. Again, it's just a Christian conviction. This is what they're saying. It's okay for you to practice head covering, but you're not allowed to believe it has any spiritual benefit. And if you do... Self righteous for thinking it makes any difference in the spiritual lives of believing women. I went to a men's breakfast and there was a man there and he was an independent, fundamental, soul winning 1611 Baptist preacher. I love these people, okay? They're fundamentalists. They put fun in the fundamentalists. And he said, I believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. This is the Word of God, okay? He goes, I believe this is where God's Word is found. He goes, not in modern versions. You've all probably heard this. Not modern versions. I got a call of someone that said, I can't believe he said that. He goes, we don't all hold that conviction. I can't believe he would go up into a mixed crowd like that. He goes, we had people reading New King James and blah, blah, blah. He goes, and that he would go up there and dare say that Hey, offended. Wouldn't go back to the men's breakfast. Totally offended by it. It doesn't offend me if someone's King James Version only. If someone truly believes the King James Bible is the word of God, then they would be bothered that I'm not getting all the spiritual benefit I could be getting if I was reading out of King James. That makes logical sense to me, even if I disagree with the position. What's the point? It doesn't believe. That's a, And coming back to the head covering, if it's just a conviction, if it's just a preference, then why do it? Why do we even uphold it? And this is exactly where the modern church gets to. They go from, it's a scriptural teaching, it's a cultural thing, It's a woman thing. It's a Corinthian thing. It's a conviction. It's nothing. And then it just disappears. I've offended my wife. So if you believe the head covering has any value in spiritual lives, women, you are essentially saying here it is. I'm saying this because this is what it really comes down to. Well, you're essentially saying that those who now practice are either not good enough Christians or they're Christians that are missing out on something great. That's what you're saying aren't we? We're saying that these Christians around, these these Christian women who don't participate in head covering, um, are missing out on something that God meant for their sanctification. If you're not saying that they're not good enough, you're saying that their sanctification is somehow insufficient or or they're missing out. Or that they're missing out on a crucial part of Christianity. Or they're incomplete Christians. And this puts us on the defensive. We don't want to say that. I don't want to say that. I'm gonna look at women who don't practice and say, "Oh, we know you just you aren't full Christians." But we fail to recognize that this attitude against the head covering is judgmental too, because it critically judges those who practice head covering instead of earnestly searching the scriptures. In in attitudes that demote head covering as a conviction, the "quote-unquote" conviction of head covering loses all its value, and it becomes a relic of no spiritual importance. If you have given into this point of view, you've already conceded. It's already over because you're saying the head covering is no spiritual edification to believing women in their sanctification. And if it's nothing more than a cloth on the head and an empty tradition, might as well stop it. It's just a fallacious position, as you'll see later. Um, You know, take it some of the positions that Jennifer and I have adopted over the last, I'm about 10 minutes late, I apologize. Take it some of the positions that we feel like Scripture teaches us that when we moved out of, um, out of being Baptist has really created some interesting situations for us. I have a brother or a a friend that um, I was real close to when I was a Baptist and I told him that I believed that Jesus' teachings on marriage were pretty pretty straightforward. I believed in the permanence of marriage. And he goes, did I ever tell you how my wife left me? And I said, no, actually I've known you for years and never tell me. He goes, she was having an affair on me with another man, and she came up to me one day, and she said, if you want to save this marriage, I'll stay, but if not, I'm going to go. He goes, I don't want to, just go. He goes, she left me and moved out west with this man, and he goes, my wife never talked to me ever again. Got divorced, split up. I said, I hate to hear that. And he goes, but then Jesus led me to my new wife. And I said, and, and, I, and he goes, and it's been great. And he goes, it's been hard, but it's been really great. And I asked him a question. I said, if you had grown up in, the ch- in a church that taught you about the importance of marriage and taught you about the importance of marrying a godly woman because the commitment you're about to make is a, re- a real lifelong commitment, would you have married the same? He goes, well, no. And I said... That's what I want. Those conversations are real. When you're dealing with subjects such as head covering or any difficult doctrine like this, and you're saying, yeah, but, but Jonathan, I've talked to people where they say, John, but you don't realize the head covering was abuse. I, I was I was suppressed because they abused it on me. You know, I'm really sorry to hear that. I really am. But God's design is good, and you are absolutely right that men have a way of polluting it. But it doesn't mean we chuck God's design because some men messed it up. Why can't we read scripture and say that's what it says, that's what I want to do, and I'm excited to live for Jesus. So um, let's pray, and then I'll be done. And then if you guys, if you guys have questions or you want to pin me up against the wall and tell me I'm wrong, that's fine. So let's pray.